welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 114 with Alan Willett. Alan has some excellent perspective on what it takes to give great feedback such that you're even capable of leading the unleadable, as is his book title. So you're going to learn, one, what makes some employees unleadable and how to lead them, two, why people are afraid to give feedback and how to overcome it, and three, how a two-minute conversation can transform everything. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep114. Here's the scoop on Alan. Alan Willett is of the rare species who is an expert international consultant, speaker, and author. He has worked with companies ranging from one person to some of the giants, such as Microsoft and NASA. Alan says that his passion is helping people and organizations transform their friction points into profit points. What is a friction point? Well, the space where the business needs meet the implementation reality. And in that space, there's always heat generated. Alan is the expert who transforms that heat to innovation and results for the business and the people. Here is Alan. Alan, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's awesome to be here. Well, I'm so intrigued, first of all, a little bit about your backstory. So in your childhood, you grew up on a dairy farm and you mentioned that your dad did some things very well, which made it a rock star dairy farm that left a mark on you. Can you give us that story? Oh, sure. Well, I'll tell you a story. Absolutely. You asked for one. One of my favorites is really I was sitting in the house with dad on a rare sunny Sunday afternoon in the summer and everything was in the fields were done. And we had a farmer come into us and go, Fritz, how's it going? Do you got all your hay in? And dad goes, yep. Is all your equipment fixed up? Yep. And the farmer just shook his head. This other farmer, he goes, boy, Fritz, you are one lucky farmer. And my dad goes, yep. I am one lucky farmer. After the guy left, my dad goes, hmm, I think he sort of missed that all the nights we were up getting the hay in while the sun was shining, <laughs> all the work we did to keep the equipment running, all these other things that we did all the time so we could have this rare Sunday afternoon off. Luck really comes from a lot of due diligence. And I learned a lot from my dad about that. That one story just says a lot to me. Oh, that is good. And so... I guess I'm also curious how as other dairy farms were struggling, you know, yours was prospering. Were there a couple kind of brilliant managerial tips and tricks you picked up as well? Sure. Well, first, you know, really is that due diligence. I got to tell you, flash forward for a minute. I've helped a lot of projects be successful. And where the other projects are struggling around them, I've had managers come up and say, boy, Alan, you are sure lucky to have those successful projects. So let's compare projects like that in the farming. So, for example, my dad did a lot of preventive maintenance. We didn't wait for things to break. He had everything on a schedule to make sure that things were kept oiled, greased, etc. Because equipment, if you have a plow breakdown or a tractor breakdown, it's going to set you back for weeks, possibly. And that's impossible to take care of. So he really made sure that we did preventive maintenance. We had the important parts on hand in case we were going to need them. Look ahead, manage the risk. The cow management, for example, on a dairy farm, it's really important to keep your cows healthy. 
So one of the things other farmers didn't do around us is like keep their feet trimmed all the time because mm-hmm. that's expensive. We always made sure we had people come to trim the cow's feet all the time to make sure they were healthy. Little things like that, just little details to really make sure that everything was going to be fine as we went along. It's the preventive stuff that really, really made the distinction between our farms and other farms. Okay. Well, thank you. That is fun and real. And I can see how that really does leave an impact. And it's cool. Just, you know, tales of fathers impacting sons reminds me of my dad always taking me to the library where I got hooked on books, you know, written by people now I'm interviewing. So it's pretty cool. Well, now let's talk about your book. It's called Leading the Unleadable, which is a compelling title. So what do you mean by unleadable? Okay. Unleadable. One, it's a catchy title, like you said. Two, a lot of times managers are going to face people that are problematic, situations that are problematic. It's often where somebody has a very positive attribute that's crossed the red line and is really having a negative impact to the project, to the group, to the organization. Oftentimes, these managers look at the people and say they're unleadable. Mm. Okay. Well, that is succinct. Okay. And so then... Well, I can go farther. (laughs) Well, you've got a number of names for maybe categories of unleadable folks. Now, when you call them cynics or divas, can you unpack a little bit about those terms and what you mean by them? Oh, absolutely. Let's look at the gifts they bring first, and then we'll talk about what happens when they cross the red line. For example, with Mavericks, I bet you're a Maverick, Pete. Pete Maverick. It could be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sorry about that. Uh, But Mavericks are people that really look at the status quo and say it can be better. They're going to push boundaries. They're going to really look for innovations, improvements. They're always pushing the edges of the envelope. I want people like that on my team. Do you know what I mean? Right. (laughs) But let's look at what a Maverick crosses the red line. A Maverick crosses the red line, and I've seen this too often, where they come into a job, an organization, and they disdain all the status quo, all the hard work where somebody worked hard to get to the place they are. They don't look at the history. They don't respect the history. They don't recognize why some things might be the way they are. And they start to be very disruptive to morale. They may actually start breaking things because they don't understand the context. And they're disrupting the group. And I've seen people start to leave the organization because the Maverick is so disruptive, bull in the china shop kind of thing. They've crossed a red line. So the key question on the Maverick is, what do you do? Let's look at the cynic, too, before we go on. Cynics are actually, you need them. Have you ever been with people that are just wildly optimistic, have great ideas, and always are pushing the boundaries for a new innovation, new idea? Oh, sure. And this wild optimism is good, but it needs some reality checks. And the reality checks is something a cynic can really bring. I worked with a lot of high-tech organizations, and they have a, a lot of cynics. You know, they have a ample supply because engineers, especially, are always looking at the flaws in things and how to fix them. So cynics is a good thing. They look at the flaws in things, and they're going to say, okay, here's what's wrong with this idea? Here's the risk with the idea. And if they're good, they're going to talk about how to make it better. But here's where a cynic crosses the red line. When all they do is basically be doom and gloom about an idea. I was in a meeting once where somebody started to bring up some really interesting ideas, innovative ideas. 
And the cynic in the room started to just say, well, that'll never work because management will do this or that. Then he made some really sharp comments that made everybody laugh, made another sharp comment because he got that, which sort of put down the person that brought up the idea. And no more ideas came up in that meeting. Mm -hmm. And that person really started to thrive on his sharp wit and ability to pick apart anything quickly. Cynicism started to spread through the organization, squashing everything. Something had to be done. So those are a couple examples. If you need more, I got a hundred, but. <laughs> well, no, I appreciate that. And what I like, is you said the word optimism, is like there is optimism inside these names. I guess, you know, cynic doesn't sound like a good thing. Like I wouldn't want to be called a cynic. But you've really highlighted how there's kind of two edges or sides to each. And I think that kind of puts me in a more favorable mindset, which seems to be what you're going for here, is that it's not so much that, you know, this person just sucks and is terrible, but rather they have a certain way of being that has you know benefits and risks. And it's kind of my job to work with that optimally. That's correct. Really, I work with so many people around the world, and I hit a lot of times where managers are just struggling with somebody on their team. I haven't met a person yet who has meant ill intent to that manager or to the team, even though they were being highly disruptive and a negative force. Hmm. They really needed that feedback to bring them around. Interesting. So not one had ill intent. Like They're like, I want to burn this place to the ground because I've got a grudge. That's correct. <laughs> I mean, I got to say, I truly actually have met once or twice a person that I thought was actually evil. Okay. It was never in a work environment. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's another intriguing story. <laughs> that's another intriguing story. We're not going to go there today, Pete. <laughs> okay. So, well, now I'd love to hear then. So what do we do? So we see that there are some benefits and some challenges associated with different kinds of folks who some may call unleadable, but you beg to differ. So what's the approach or the formula? Is it sort of customized for the different types or are there are a couple of universal principles as well? Yes and yes. All right. There is absolutely some universal principles, and I highlight those in Leaders in Action, How to Give Powerful Feedback That Makes a Positive Difference, which is Chapter 5. The principle really behind it is a, a couple things. One is you really do want to give powerful feedback that leads to a positive difference. I've had a lot of people that did one of two things wrong. One is to stay quiet and just try to let things get better by itself. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes it does. <laughs> and that's a dangerous thing because you might start to count on that. The other thing you can do, by the way, is give feedback in a really negative way that makes not a positive difference, but actually makes things worse. So right. you really, I, I say there's a high bar for feedback that you give it positive difference. The person says, thank you. And that it really has a long-term lasting impact. So I really have a high bar. So you said your high bar is like feedback gets the Alan Willett thumbs up if it kind of checks each of those boxes. That's correct. And that's a hard thing to do. But most people don't have that in mind. And I say, if you start to track and measure the way you get feedback and the impact it has, it comes back to realizing it's not the other person that's responsible, but you're responsible for your process for delivering it. And I have a process that I suggest in the book, like, you know, like the cynic, by the way. Let's talk about that one for a minute. Okay. So that person really was being a very negative impact to the group. 
the manager uh, that was the facilitator owner of these meetings came to me and said, you know, oh, this is horrible. Cynicism's running rampant through the organization. And I basically said, yep, whose fault is that? He looked at me, what do you mean? Is it the cynic's fault or is it yours? Mm. Ah, <laughs> so, I, and by the way, this is an example of giving feedback. I asked questions and I said to the manager basically this, without judgment, very concisely, what you need to think about is who's responsible for those meetings and is there ways to not allow the cynicism to happen? And does the person know they're being that disruptive? Please think about that and get back to me. Very yeah. short, very concise, non-judgmental, although it did point a direction. So what I worked with that manager on was to basically think about all the reasons they're angry about this and why it was a problem. And I said, sit down and write, think about this. Why are you angry? And then you can look at why you're angry. You're angry because it's really uh, frustrating a lot of other people. People are feeling put down. It's squashing ideas. You're dreading going to your own meetings. Other people are dreading going to the uh, meetings to make progress. It's starting to spread to other groups. You know, there's a lot of things he was really angry about and feeling very judgmental. <laughs> mm -hmm. Why is this person out to get me? So I said, okay, put your anger aside now and really put together some really concise feedback so you can talk to the person. So the manager did that, set up an hour to talk to the person. And my guideline to the manager was, to everybody, when you're going to give feedback, make it short. Try to have it be two minutes or less. I like to do it in less than a minute, but I'll give people two minutes when okay. they're getting started at this. And so he basically sat down with a person and he said, hey, dude, I won't <laughs> give a name, but, you know, this is what's happening. In meetings, you bring up risks in a way that makes people laugh, but it actually is killing innovation. It's starting to be a very negative impact to the group. I want to know if you see what's happening and if you have ideas how to actually help get your ideas out there and help other ideas be better. Do you see the negative impact that's occurring? And then you just wait. And you wait as long as it takes for the person to talk. And eventually, in this case, the person talked and said, yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. When I do this, <laughs> it does, he said, it feels good because people laugh, et cetera. But I see now that when I think about it, that the ideas stop coming. And I don't mean for that to happen. All right. So there's a couple things that happened, by the way, with this whole interaction. One is I really helped the uh, manager to see that he was responsible for making sure that people were contributing. And we also worked on ways for the space for the negative thinking to come into place and the space for positive thinking to come into place. There are structural things we could do as well. So there's a lot of details behind that. But the first thing is to really get feedback that the person can hear and think about and make adjustments based on it. Okay. So, and then the content of that feedback is, you know, short, under two minutes, and mentioning the behavior and the implications of the behavior, and then asking, you know, do you see that? And asking if they have any ideas to adjust. That's correct. Okay. Well, that sounds easier than we fear, I dare to say. Is that your experience working with clients? Absolutely. Really, what I have found, let's look at the situation normal. This sounds so simple, so obvious, but there's a couple problems. People are often afraid to give this feedback. It feels confrontational, et cetera. I've done this with lots of different groups. 
And basically, uh, I say, what's the fear of giving feedback? And people have come up with about 30 different unique reasons oh, why wow. it's hard. I simplify it in the book. I think I uh, give like 10 or 12 reasons why it's hard to give feedback. So people are really afraid to give feedback because of experiences. That's one. People do have fear. They need to remove that. Number two is when people usually give feedback, they end up talking and talking and talking and their emotions come out, their anger comes out, their frustrations come out, and they start to spill on to all these other different things that the person might have done wrong in the past. So instead of this short two-minute feedback, it's a half an hour, and the other person has to start to defend and argue and leaves angry, disappointed, and ready to do harm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so contrast that to the two-minute non-judgmental. I just really want to know what's going on with you and what's happening for you. Let me give you another example. One person was on the team and was not doing what they had committed to. They were really being horrible at their job. Okay. So I talked to the leader. I said, leader, basically, has this been a problem before? And they said, no, this is new, but it's horrible. And it listed all the reasons she was angry. And I said, you need to talk to the person. So basically, she got rid of her anger. She came in and said, you know, Joe, you are not doing your work like you have in the past. It's been a very big disappointment to me and the team. We're likely to miss our commitments. I'm really confused what's going on with you. Simple, sweet, and she just waited. She ended up waiting for three whole minutes. Oh, wow. That's a long time, by the way. And he finally just said, I've been trying to keep this private, but I've been going through a very bad divorce, and it's really impacted me everywhere. I owe you and the whole team an apology. And he said, I'll fix it. So the meeting that she scuttled for an hour was about 10 minutes long. The person got up and left and went to the team and apologized and told them what was going on. They rallied around him. They helped him. And his work went back to being spectacular almost instantaneously by the end of the week. Oh, Alan, you just got a slam dunk story. I'm sure you share that frequently with your clients. It's so funny. Thank you. Please continue. You had more to say. Oh, no, it's really, you don't know what's going on with people. As a leader, you don't know what's going on with people. Oftentimes, they really don't know the impact their behavior is having. You really got to approach it with a loving, non-judgmental approach. You'll be surprised what you learn just by stating it and listening. Yes. And so I am wondering then, if the feedback occurs in you know two minutes or less, and you're scheduling an hour, what do the follow-up conversations sound like? It seems like there's a lot of minutes we haven't accounted for yet. Okay. The reason I have an hour is I want everybody to feel relaxed, like there's time to process this. So after you get feedback and after you find out what's going on, oftentimes it is really short, but sometimes there's more work to be done. You'll notice in the book, there's two chapters. One is about giving powerful feedback that makes a powerful difference. Sometimes it's sufficient, but sometimes you need to build a bridge to successful improvement. Sometimes you really need much more help than that. Here, I'll give you a simple example. Long time ago, uh, we used to do donuts at where I used to work a long time ago. And I had a favorite donut. And I decided I wasn't gonna have donuts anymore. I was trying to get in much better running shape, et cetera. But I kept it a secret. So people would bring in, donuts and they'd say, I got your favorite donut, Alan, which by the way was, you know, a plain donut that was a day old, a little bit crispy, loved those. 
they'd bring me my favorite donut. And you know what? I'd eat them. (laughs) Because at one, it was my favorite donut. Two, it really felt bad for somebody to do something special for me and to bring that. So let's transform this. We've had a manager was working with a lower level manager who was being, oh my gosh, this guy was just running meetings and in such a negative way that he was doing damage to everybody else. But what happened was he had some key buttons that if people pushed him, he would go into his anger mode. Mm. So he was trying to fix this all by himself. He knew he wanted to change it. So he had a history of the organization of a couple of years. People were used to this. Here's the amazing thing that happened. He was trying to do it, trying to keep everything calm and together. And he was doing it in secret. So it confused people. So they would start pushing on those buttons until he exploded. Mm. They brought him his favorite donut. So the feedback with that person had to be much longer. They gave the feedback. The person talked about his problems. And then they talked about how to build a bridge for successful improvement, which involved being public about what he wanted to change. It involved getting other people to know that he really was trying to make that behavior better and that he would appreciate if people didn't push those buttons. (laughs) (laughs) And if they did push those buttons or he started to go off the rails, that they developed like a hand sign or a word to say, hey, you're off the rails, bring it back together how to do a timeout, you know. So in that meeting, there's a lot more processing about how do we make this successful change. Now, you say push the buttons. Like, that makes me think that they are deliberately want to see him blow up. What do you mean by push the buttons? Yes. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds different than giving a donut. Giving a donut sounds yeah. like a nice thing, whereas pushing the button sounds like I'm out to get you a little bit. Here, Virginia Satir said this a long time ago, that people often choose the familiar over the comfortable. Do you mm. got that? Okay. The familiar over the comfortable. So basically, it was very familiar for that manager to behave in a certain way. So when the familiarity stopped, he was behaving in a strange new way without any explanation. Okay. All right. People longed to return to the familiar. That is fascinating. It sounds <laughs> odd. I loved it when that guy was screaming at us. <laughs> they didn't. But really, I was observing these things, and the group looked stressed when he was doing these really strange, rational behaviors. Uh And somebody would raise a hand and push a button. He would react in the normal way. You could see the whole room relax. Wow, that is fascinating. I imagine you've seen these patterns elsewhere as well. Absolutely. There was great wisdom. People choose the familiar over the comfortable. So to change the familiar to the better, often requires being much more public about it and building a support system for that new system of behaviors. Yes, that does seem to be a bit of a theme there is the whole team rallies around and gets on board, you know, in the case of the divorce or the anger situation. And that's interesting because I imagine most people fear that if I reveal or disclose this weakness or development opportunity, the challenge that I'm working on here that folks are going to like tear into me or they're going to be like, I told you so, or all kinds of negative things are happening. And your experience is that in fact, folks come together and positive things unfold. Right. Look at the divorce. He wanted to keep it private. He didn't want to have to share his misery, et cetera. People were happy to help him. The manager, he felt very uncomfortable doing this. Because managers often feel like they need to be completely competent 
you know, super people. And to share a weakness was a really big vulnerability for him. He was shocked about how uh, graceful people were and how they started to share what things they were struggling with and asked for his help as well. It really is a uh, system of compassion once people can go past their vulnerabilities. Oh, that's great. I'm good and on board, but I've always been a feedback lover. So in some ways, you're preaching to the choir. So let's dig into maybe those who are less on board. You've cataloged these fears. Can you give us maybe a couple of the most common fears and the antidote to them when it comes to, I don't know if I could do that. That feels a little spooky. Or Alan, you haven't met Jane. <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> you don't even know what you were dealing with over here. Yes, absolutely. One is just simply a fear of conflict. That's an easy one. Do I need to say more about that? Well, I think a lot of people have it. So you know, if you have solutions, let's hear them. Oh, well, just one, the fear of conflict, which is the person's going to argue with me or the person won't like me or anything like that. It's really hard to do that. And like I said, without the right approach to feedback, you might end up having a conflict in a fight. What I really encourage in my feedback is, you know, to really make it fact-based, use I language and what the clear evidence is. And that removes the fight so many times and just lays it out for a mutual discussion about how to get back to the good of the group. How do we make the organization better? Another fear is that it'll come back to bite me later. Mm -hmm. This person will use whatever this is against me. And again, most times people find this fear to be irrelevant. By the way, uh, the book Leading the Unleadable, let's talk about leading the unleadable upwards for a second. Do you know what I mean? Managing, oh, oh, sure. Yeah. Leading your leader. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole host of fears there that if I raise this problem, that it's going to reflect badly on me or some teammate be harmed by it, things like that. And again, those are valid fears if you do it wrong. What people have to realize is that managers really do want to know this. But if you raise a feedback in a way that makes them think you're arguing with them or disagreeing with a goal, it's not going to work. So similar to the feedback I give to the people that work for me, I focus on the goals and say, this is where we're discrepant from the goals. When I give feedback to people that are above me in an organization, I encourage people is to focus first, again, on the goals. I understand the goals are this. Yes. And this seems discrepant to me, oh, hello, leader, that, for example, this is one that I help somebody do. Leader, you say you don't want any surprises. Yet, it seems to me that every time somebody brings up something in a meeting that you think is a surprise, you uh, stand up, you start to yell. It seems to me like you're really causing people to be afraid to give you any news at all. What do you think about that? So, again, very concise feedback to the leader above them, but it was non-judgmental. starts with a goal and comes back, is that what you want to happen? And in that case, the manager really started to see what the person was talking about and adjusted his behavior to thank people when bad news was brought to him. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, and I'd like to hear as well, when you say, what do you think about that? And they say, well, Alan, I think you're full of crap. You are so off base with this. Like, you know, the worst case scenario unfolds. I know your book has some scripts. Do you have one for that? Oh, absolutely. Basically, what I really encourage people is, especially when they're giving feedback upwards, is to use risk language. <laughs> For example, in the story where, you know, the manager wants no surprises, 
I would say, you know, that could be true, but I think there's a risk. Do you see there's a risk or do you think there's no risk at all? And, you know, really, some people will say, well, you haven't met John. (laughs) John, you know what? I have met John. (laughs) (laughs) And I haven't met anybody that says there's absolutely no risk. They say, okay, yeah, there could be a risk there. Do you think it's low, medium, or high? I think it's low. Okay, it's low. But if it's low, what's the impact if it's true? Oh, that could be pretty severe. Okay, so what I encourage you to do is just watch this and you see if the risk is low and I, my feedback is invalid or if it's accurate and there's some adjustment that is needed. And I'm happy to help watch with you to see if I'm wrong about that. Okay, that's good. That's good. And because risk, that's very clever. You sort of reframe it from it's no longer an absolute binary, true, false. It's like, can you give me a 20% probability that there might be something to this? And then you can get that. Absolutely. And I think risk language is really important. And let me be really clear about a distinction. If you have somebody working for you and they committed to do X by point Y and they're working on Z and it looks like Z is not going to be done until Y plus 20, it's an issue. There's no risk there. And you have to be clear about that. When I talk about a behavior thing it's and a possible outcome, it's more of a risk. So there's a contrast, you're saying, a distinction between you know behavior and outcomes versus just clear-cut accountability for delivering a certain thing by a certain time. That's correct. And I'm encouraging the feedback to really reflect what you know and what you don't know. Okay. Say a little bit more about that. Reflect what you know and what you don't know. So you're kind of coming in there with some humility that you don't have all the facts and you're making that known. How does that sound? That's correct. Well, for example, Pete, you promised me to uh, send me uh, the frequently asked questions by uh, Thursday (laughs) and I don't have them yet. Well, actually, you did, Pete, by the way. (laughs) Uh, But and I don't have them yet. And Pete, by the way, it seems to me there's a pattern to this and I would really like to know what's going on for you. Okay, again, Pete, you've been flawless with this, but that's an example feedback where here's a fact. Okay. Here's my impression. I haven't really tracked all the data. And I would like your feedback. What's happening? Why is this one off? Is there a pattern or is there not? I think there's a risk here that we can work on together. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's like just distinct, just laying out these are facts. This happened and then this happened and question mark. <laughs> What's the story behind there? That's correct. Okay, great. Well, so you tell me. Alan, is there anything else you want to make sure that we cover off before we talk about some of your favorite things here? Sure. I would like to note this. There's a couple major areas we didn't talk about, and I want to just point them out. One area is what I talk to a lot of managers. They always say, Alan, do you, I think we should just fire them. Oh. And I'm like, okay. There's actually a chapter in the book dedicated to that, which is called Decision Time, Remove or Improve. Okay. I want to be clear. It's not every time that you can turn a person around. Your obligation as a leader, the one you must never waver from, is to the group, the group, the group. And you have to make an evaluation at whether or not you can turn the situation around with a disruptive individual quick enough to not do harm to the group. There's a lot of factors there in that book. That chapter highlights what the factors you have to look at are, how to evaluate them, and what actions you can take. 
because it's not an on-off switch. It's not fire or fix. It's really more like a dimmer switch. There is a whole range of things from doing nothing to helping fix to changing them to a different group or changing the position slightly to firing. There's a whole range of actions. And I really encourage people to take a look at that and think about that as they engage in this. Okay. The second thing I just want to highlight is we uh, neglected the second half of the book, which is the prevention measures. There's a number of things that people can do to prevent people problems in the first place. What I find is leaders go through an evolution where they are always in the reactive mode to project problems, people problems, et cetera. And what I really encourage is a move from reaction to proactivity, really how to set clear missions, how to set expectations of excellence, and how to set those expectations of excellence on a daily basis. Okay, thank you. Well, now can you tell us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I forget the exact words of this, but I really love a Robert Heinlein quote, which is, people should be able to uh, lead an army, climb a mountain, swim a sea, change a diaper, cook a meal, et cetera, et cetera, a whole list of things, and then say specialization is for insects. And I really embrace that quote in so many ways. I think we humans are learning machines And we always want to be engaged in something that's pushing our edges, pushing our envelope, giving us more ideas and more ways to improve as a human. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a piece of research? Oh, well, you know, I have to say, uh, I really have enjoyed Oliver Sacks writing, such as the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Mm. Because in the Oliver Sacks writing, he really talks about that a lot of times we're trying to... uh, take people that are living outside the norm and push them into a very specific way of being. And oftentimes that has done more harm to the person than good. And so I really enjoy reading Oliver Sacks. He makes me think differently. Oh, thank you. And any other favorite books that you would highlight? Oh, I love books. But I'll say, you know, one of the things I really like doing is looking for leadership themes and how leaders behave in works of fiction. So I really have a couple authors that are sort of at the opposite ends. Orson Scott Card, for example, with Ender's Game, which is in science fiction, is really, an Ender in Exile is my favorite for this, really talks about how good leaders behave and how bad leaders behave. And there's a lot of truth in that. So I really enjoy that one. And I also enjoy John Varley, who's at the other end of the spectrum, another science fiction writer. I especially love his Rolling Thunder series about teenagers that go to Mars. And there's a heck of a lot about leadership in that one as well, as well as really good science and a really good story. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, whether it's a product or service or app or thought framework you find yourself using often? Oh my gosh. I'm enjoying Trello right now. All right. Trello is very nice for uh, visual management. It has a lot of nice integrations. I really like the simplicity on the top and the ability to see things and move things around easily and the ability to go deep and add lots of comments and notes keeps me well organized. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite habit or personal practice that helps you be more awesome at your job? Ah, reality management. What does that mean exactly? (laughs) One of the things I've really learned in life is that you have uh, three steps to enlightenment. One is the ability to see reality, which is an ongoing task all by itself to really look hard and cold and be able to see what's going on. Number two is if you see reality, it's not that easy to accept it, but to really accept it, to accept that it's true, whether it's a hard thing or a good thing. And number three is once you accept it, to deal with it. 
So I am a big believer in reality management and it has helped me throughout my career. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite nugget from you in terms of an Allen original that gets people nodding their heads and retweeting and really kind of connecting and resonating with what you've said? Sure. It sounds very small and concise, but I often end my talks with a very simple statement. Go forth, do good in the world. Oh, thank you. And what would you say is the best way to get in touch with you if folks want to learn more or see what you're doing? You can go to my website at leadtheunleadable.com. All my contact information is there and I'd love to talk to you. Oh, thank you. And do you have a final parting call to action or challenge for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Go forth. Do good in the world. Perfect. Well, Alan, thanks so much for this and good luck with the book and your consulting and all you're up to. Thank you very much, Pete. It was awesome to be here.